I'm uh, really grateful this morning for uh, the young people in our church reminding us of some of the old songs of our faith. Um, rich for us to be able to, to return and do that again. Um, I, I want to read to you a letter that was written by a centurion as he sent the Apostle Paul back to Caesarea. Claudius Lysisius, to His Excellency, Governor Festus. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with troops, with my troops, and rescued him, for I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. I don't know if you get the picture or not, but the Apostle Paul has been arrested by the Romans in Jerusalem. And because of a plot by the Jews to try to kill the Apostle Paul, he is being sent by the Romans to a different province, to Caesarea, where he'll stand trial for whatever these accusations are in front of the governor of that area, Felix. Now, the Jews didn't appreciate that very much. They didn't like that at all. And so what they did was they decided that they were going to ask Festus, the governor in their area, to send Paul back to Jerusalem. They had no real desire for him to face trial in Jerusalem. What they really wanted to do was to hijack him and kill him on the way. Paul arrived in, uh, in Caesarea without any harm. As a matter of fact, this centurion had sent two legions, 200 men with Paul to guard him on the way. And he had sent him in the middle of the night so that nobody would know that he was coming. So Paul is, is there in Caesarea. And when Festus comes and says, you know, Governor Felix, can't we take Paul back to Jerusalem with us? He was doing this not because he, he really wanted to see Paul stand trial in his own area, but he was doing this because he was trying to do a favor to the Jews. But Paul was asked, are you willing to go back to, to Jerusalem and stand trial? Yeah. Paul knew that there was no desire for them to give him a fair trial. And so Paul, being a Roman citizen, said, I appeal to Caesar. Now, it was kind of a difficult thing to be a Roman citizen back in those days. The, the truth is, is that Roman citizenship wasn't given out very often. Um, that, that all the people who were subject to Rome were not necessarily Roman citizens. Uh, most of the time, a Roman citizenship either had to be paid for, where someone would save money for years and years and years to buy their citizenship in Rome, or sometimes they would uh, uh, be granted citizenship after you know a, a, a nice victory on the battlefield. A soldier might be granted citizenship after that. 
Paul actually seems to have become a citizen because the hometown, the town where he grew up in, had honored Caesar in a way that really pleased him and made him feel excited about this town. And Caesar, in his benevolence, had just declared everyone in the whole city to be citizens of Rome. He did that from time to time, but it was fairly unusual. So it was a little bit of a strange thing that Paul was a citizen of Rome. But the fact that he was was huge because there were so many opportunities opportunities that were given to Roman citizens that weren't given to normal folks. One of those was the right to appeal to Caesar. See, any time a Roman citizen went up for trial for any crime, any place in the Roman Empire, and they didn't feel like they were being given a fair trial, which I don't know if you can believe it or not, but back in those days, it was typical of the outposts of Rome that you would be railroaded, you know, much as Jesus was when he was crucified. But because of that, any citizen could appeal to Caesar. And what that meant was that they would be, they would be taken back to Rome and would wait until Caesar had time to hear those cases personally. Which I can't imagine that he did a lot of those, but little by little they would wait on Caesar to be able to hear their case. And Caesar would make a decision. He was, in a sense, the highest court in the land and there was no other court that they could go to. So Paul appealed to Caesar. Now Festus consulted with his advisors to see what else he could do. And he came back to Paul and said, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. And so Paul was entrusted to the care of a centurion, a man named Julius, who was traveling back home to Rome. He was chained to Julius, and they got on board a ship and started making their way back to, uh, uh, back to, uh, uh, to Rome. Now, the weather was turning bad. That time of season was a time when storms tended to brew up a lot. And so as they stopped to, uh, uh, to, to, to see how much farther they were going to go, you know, Paul suggested that they winter there because it was going to be such a difficult time to be able to get back to Rome at that point. But the owner of the ship didn't want to do that. He wanted his cargo to go on. And so that's what they did. So Paul and a small company, including Luke and Timothy and maybe some others, got on board the boat and started to sail back to Rome. Now, as Paul had, had, had guessed, they hit a horrendous storm. Uh, the storm was battering against the boat. It was ripping the boat apart. They started dumping all the cargo overboard to try to save the boat. Um, I, I can imagine there's seasickness going on as people are rocked back and forth on this boat in the storm. Um, they, they, they're afraid that they're going to lose not just the boat, but their lives in all of this. And the, the storm drives them way off their course. They finally find some land. They start to take sound of how deep the water is, and they find some land is coming near. So they look for a sandy beach that they can run the boat up on because they don't have any place to, to harbor the boat. So they're going to run the boat up on some kind of, a, of, of, land, of land. And so they start to do that. They dump the anchors. They cut the anchors loose and put up the sails so that the sails will take them right into the sandbar. Unfortunately, instead of hitting the land, they hit a sandbar out before they get to land. And it causes the, the, the ship to go up on top of the sandbar and the waves coming behind it with such force that it totally destroys the aft part of the ship. Little by little, people start getting out of the boat and they start trying to make their way to the shore. They discover that they're on an island called Malta. Now, 
biblical historians will tell you that the Malta that we know of now is not the same as the island they went on because Paul certainly couldn't have been driven that far off course. It may be true, but you could never convince the people on the island of Malta that this wasn't where Paul was shipwrecked. In fact, they claim it and they have, they have a, a, a churches set up to, to commemorate his, his, uh, his, uh, his, his, his being there. Now, soon after they get there, Paul is gathering up firewood to try to make a fire on this island. And this huge serpent, very, very poisonous, reaches out and grabs Paul's arm and latches onto its arm, injecting his poison into his body. Well, the people in Malta knew that Paul was a criminal, that he was being taken to Rome. He was, obviously he was because he was attached to this Roman soldier, Julius, that was taking him back. So they assumed that the gods had declared that Paul was guilty of this offense. And since he didn't die in the shipwreck, that they, that they would send an asp, a, 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 a snake, to, to poison him and to kill him. And they just started watching Paul to see how long it was going to take him just to fall over dead. God intervenes, and Paul experienced no bad repercussions from this snake bite at all, that God completely saved him from this. And because of this miracle, that this very, very highly poisonous snake didn't kill Paul, many of the people started listening to the message of Christ and started returning to Christ. Well, they ended up wintering on Malta for several months. And eventually, Paul was able to get on a boat with his friends, Timothy, Luke, perhaps some others, with this Roman centurion, Julius, and they made their way on to Rome. Now, as Paul landed, as the boat landed there, there were a group of Christians in Rome who had heard that Paul was being sent to Rome. And however these Roman Christians had gotten there, perhaps they had migrated from places, you know, nearer Jerusalem, perhaps that someone had come there and shared the gospel with them. But they had heard of Paul, and so they went out to meet Paul, and they helped him, I think, to find a, a place that he could rent. Julius turned him over to the local authorities and Paul was chained night and day to some Roman soldier. And he lived in a rented house under house arrest where he couldn't leave the house, he couldn't go even to the market to buy food, couldn't go out to try to preach the gospel, but people kept coming to Paul to hear what he would have to say. In fact, at one point, Paul sent out for the Jews in the area. You guys that have studied Paul's life will remember that over and over again, when Paul went into a new city, one of the first things he did was go to the, to the Jewish synagogue to preach the gospel to the Jews. And when the Jews responded, in some cases, some would receive, but many times they rejected Paul's message of Christ. Then he would go to the Gentiles. Well, he does something similar even when he's in Rome, that he asks the Jewish leaders to come. And as the Jews are coming and gathering in this house... now. This is not a house like like Howie's where he's sitting out, you know, on the, by the next to the pool, you know, with his with his uh, Roman soldier tagged to the side of him. This isn't that kind of a place. It's not, you know, two stories with many rooms and a, and a nice color TV. Probably you should think about this rented house as more like a tiny little efficiency apartment, like a one room place where the cooking and the sleeping and everything except for going to the bathroom, which happened out by the tree, that everything else happened right there in that little room, right? So Paul is staying in this room. He can't leave, but others are crowding in. Now the Jews, once again, mostly rejected the message of Christ, though a few believed. 
And little by little, people would come in to hear the message that Paul was preaching. Now, the Christians had tried to help Paul, but in many cases, they had difficulty financially themselves. And as Paul waited for months and maybe years for an opportunity to stand before Caesar and to plead his case before Caesar, money was depleted, resources were depleted, Paul had to go on shorter rations. Those who were helping Paul had to look for work or for food wherever they could find it. And things were becoming pretty desperate, pretty difficult for Paul. Then a messenger arrived. He came from an area in northeastern Greece. Uh, the region was, was called Macedonia. And he brought greetings from a church that Paul had established in that area. But not only that, he brought a very generous financial gift that he could share with Paul. It helped to provide for the food, for clothing, for the basic necessities of life. And Paul must have felt incredible gratitude that all of a sudden he had received this gift from these people at this church. And even though this church was not a rich church that they had given to the point that they helped Paul out in tremendous ways. The messenger fell ill and it was some time before he could return to Macedonia. So Paul waited, hoping that the man would not die. When he was healed, when he was well, Paul sat down to write a letter. And we have that letter included in the Bible. It's his letter to the Philippian church. Philippi was a little city, a little Roman outpost in the area of Macedonia. Now, as Paul was writing to the Philippians, he, he expressed incredible gratitude, as you would expect, for their gift. He told them how much he appreciated their kindness and their goodness in all of these things. Paul also tried to encourage them, to help them to walk in the faith, and he gave them some encouragement to overcome some of the, the pitfalls that so many in the church were experiencing. He said, folks, you need to live with a sense of humility just as Jesus Christ did. And he talks about Jesus Christ going and emptying him, coming to earth and emptying himself and becoming like one of us so that he could serve us. He talks about not grumbling, not arguing, not letting those things characterize their lives. And then I think Paul just runs into a place as he's writing where all he can think of is, oh, I wish I could stand face to face in front of these people. I wish I could tell them the things that God has them has for them. And then he thinks, what if I sent someone in my place? And that's where we're going to pick up the letter. We're in chapter 2 of Philippians, starting with verse 19. Paul writes to them, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who shows genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for interests, for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself 
because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Who was this guy named Timothy? (laughs) Well, he had been a traveling companion with Paul for many, many years. In in fact, we pick up Timothy's story uh, back in, in the book of Acts as Paul is visiting the church at Lystra, a church that he planted on his first missionary journey. He returns there on his second missionary journey, and he, he, he ministers to and cares for the people there in Lystra. We're told that Timothy was a young man in Lystra, probably a teenager at this time. His father was a Greek who, to all appearances, was an unbeliever. His mother was Jewish. Now, I say she was Jewish, but it was very strange that a Jewish woman would marry a Greek man. Uh, it It was not typical for Jews to marry outside of their faith, so it was strange that she would marry a Greek man. What's even stranger is for Jewish children, for Jewish boys, on the eighth day after birth, they were taken to the temple and circumcised, or taken to the synagogue and circumcised. She hadn't had Timothy circumcised. In fact, whether it was because she didn't care enough about her Jewish heritage to do that or because Timothy's father was a Greek and absolutely refused to have his son made uh, circumcised to become a Jew, essentially, Timothy had grown up in a home where he had a father who wasn't interested in his Jewish heritage and a mother who was not really insisting that he get that heritage either. Timothy, at some point, hears the gospel. It's possible that on uh, Paul's first trip through Lystra, that when he was preaching the gospel in Lystra, that Timothy heard as a young man and started to understand the things that God had done in his life and embraced the gospel and gave his life to Christ. His mother had become a Christian as well, his grandmother as well, and so Timothy continued to be nurtured and strengthened by his, by his mother and by his grandmother, even though his father was a Greek. So when Paul comes back to Lystra, The believers at Lystra said, this young man is a tremendous young man in the faith. They had nothing but glowing good things to say about him. In fact, there was another town just the next block over, the next way way over called Iconium. And in Iconium, the believers said the same things about this young man from Lystra, that he was a young man of incredible faith. We do our young people a disservice if we don't allow them to exercise their faith in ways that becomes an example to the body. For Timothy, he was that kind of a young man. He was a young man of, of incredible faith, of incredible passion. So Paul wanted him to take, wanted to take Timothy with him on his travels to allow him to learn to present the gospel, to preach the gospel, to be a part of the ministry that, that was there. And so Paul was going to take him with him. The problem was, again, Timothy is uncircumcised. And, and again, every time Paul goes into a town, he goes first to the Jews. Now, Timothy, as a Greek, would not even be given the opportunity to be heard by the Jews. And all of the Jews in the area would have known that Timothy was, at least on his father's side, a Greek and not a Jew. And because Paul wanted Timothy to be effective in ministry as they traveled together, he had Timothy circumcised. 
This was not the last time that Timothy would experience discomfort in order to be effective in presenting the gospel. In fact, Timothy traveled for months with Paul. He endured uh, situations where he was chased out of town with Paul for presenting the gospel. He, he may have been imprisoned at times when Paul was imprisoned. He certainly is not having an easy time. And then he's traveling with Paul back to Rome. He's shipwrecked and stuck on an island for three months that he knows nothing about, where there are no Christians, where there are no believers. Timothy continued to do whatever he had to do in order to live out out the gospel in front of the people that he got to share it with, regardless of the pain that was involved for him. Now, he was with Paul, caring for his needs, bringing him food, bringing him people who needed to hear the gospel, a partner with Paul in living out the faith. And Paul said, I have no one like Timothy. In fact, look at the way Paul describes Timothy in this passage. He says, I have no one else like him who shows you genuine concern for your welfare. Do you hear Paul's heart for this young man? He says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. He describes Timothy as someone who is faithful. He's faithful to Paul. This mentor who had brought him through so much, how easy would it have been? Do you guys remember the story of John Mark? John Mark set sail with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. But after a little bit of difficulty, he got homesick and left and abandoned the disciples and went back to Jerusalem, went home to his mother. How easy would it have been for Timothy to make a decision like that? that instead of staying with Paul, that as they passed back through Lystra, that he would say, I think I'm going to stay here and just be with the people that I know for a while. How easy would that have been? But, but he was faithful to his mentor, Paul. He stayed with him. He continued to support him. He helped him in, the, in, this, in this difficult situation where Paul was under house arrest. But he wasn't just faithful to Paul. Paul says he was faithful to the church. That Timothy did everything he could to pour out his life for the church. He shows genuine concern for your welfare. And that even though other people may be only concerned about their own needs, Timothy is not that way. That he's willing to sacrifice for the good of the people that he serves. Timothy showed faithfulness to the mission of Christ. With Paul, they proclaimed Christ to Jews and to Greeks. They proclaimed Christ to men and to women. They proclaimed Christ to the peasants on the side of the street that had nothing and to governors who had almost everything. They, they proclaimed Christ in places where people were willing to hear the gospel and received it gratefully. And they proclaimed Christ in, pl in places where people absolutely were hostile to the gospel and even tried to kill them because of preaching the name of Christ. Timothy was faithful to the mission. I think all of that is because Timothy was faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was important that he was faithful to 
Paul, it was important that he was faithful to the church. It was important that he was faithful to the mission. But all of that springs from a deep and passionate and abiding relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, not long ago, um, a guy named uh, uh, Jeff Kenneman and uh, uh, Mark Matlock conducted a study where they tried to look at young people from ages 18 to 29. All of them had, were young people who were raised in the church. So they actually had a background in Christianity, a background in going to church. They wanted to find out what happened to these guys after high school. What they found, they, just, they described these guys in four different categories. They said there are four different kinds of young people in this category. So first of all, there were the nomads. Uh, I'm uh, sorry, the prodigals. The prodigals were people who no longer claimed anything about Christ. They had rejected their faith. They had walked completely away from the gospel. And when they were asked on a survey or something, um, what is your religion? Their most likely response was none. So there's the prodigals. And that amounted to about 22% of this generation of kids that had been raised in the church. The second group they describe as the nomads. Now, the nomads still claimed to be Christians, but these guys had not been to church a single time in the last six months. They were people who claimed to believe in Christ, but their actions didn't show anything to indicate that they were still interested in pursuing their faith. The third group of people, he called, they called habitual churchgoers. About 38%, almost 40% of these guys were habitual churchgoers. What that meant was that they were still attending church at least every month. But they would not acknowledge that the Bible is the word of God. They would not acknowledge that Jesus Christ had died for their sins. And they were not interested in pursuing personal spiritual growth. The young people, the young adults, the 18 to 29-year-olds that are attending our churches may well fit into this group that even though they still claim to have some, some, some faith, that the, that the things that they believe are not the foundational teachings of Christianity. These men found that only 10% were what they called resilient disciples. And resilient disciples, what they meant by that is that these are people who believe those foundational truths. That they believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins. They believe that, they, uh, um, that, that the Bible is the word of God. That they actually were attending church at, at, on at very least at a once a month kind of basis. And beyond that, that they were, uh, they were people who were, uh, uh, who were in some ways interested in pursuing their own spiritual growth. 10%. Do you know what their biggest finding was in the difference between the resilient Christians and everyone else? The churches that the resilient disciples had attended had taught them to develop a relationship with Christ. I, I don't just mean that they believed the right things or that they understood the right things. I don't just mean that they had made a commitment to Christ and been baptized. What I mean is that they had developed a sense of intimacy with Christ. 
That when they read scripture, that they didn't read it just because it helped them to understand theology. They read it because they encountered Jesus in the pages of that book. That when they would walk down their streets and talk to people, that they didn't just see these as random occurrences that had no reflection on their lives. That they saw God at work around them in the people that they talked to, in the situations that they encountered. They didn't just believe that going to church made a difference. They saw the Jesus of the Bible. Bible come to life for them through the messages that the pastor preached, through the Bible studies that they attended, that they learned to walk in an intimate relationship with Christ where they spoke to him in prayer and expected to hear from him. It's not enough for us to show up at church on a Sunday morning. That if Jesus isn't the Lord of our lives, if he's not an intimate friend, if he's not the one that we walk with all week long, showing up at church doesn't make a lot of difference in our lives. Timothy had that kind of commitment. Well, (laughs) Paul had a a problem, didn't he? (laughs) Because the person who was the most acceptable person for him to send to the Philippians was also the person that was the best at giving him help where he was. And so he said, I can't send Timothy until I know what's going to happen in my situation. And then he seems to think maybe God will see fit to let me stand before Caesar soon. And maybe Caesar will allow me to go free and I can go back and visit the, the Philippian church once again as well. And so he makes mention of that. But he says, still, I'm not going to leave these people without a personal face-to-face person, a person minister to admonish them, to encourage them. And so he continues on in verse 25. He says, But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. (laughs) Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy. And honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give to me. So he's going to send Epaphroditus. Who is Epaphroditus? Well, Epaphroditus is only mentioned twice in the Bible, and both of them are in this letter to the Philippians. He, he, he was hardly mentioned at all. There's, there's a man that was named Epaphras, who's mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossian church and mentioned again in Philemon. And some scholars have said, well, maybe this guy is the same guy as Epaphras because his name would have been a variation of the same name. Epaphras, Epaphroditus. It's a a variation of the same name. So some people have said this this probably was the same guy that Paul was dealing with in both of those situations. I don't really think so. It appears 
from the letter of Colossians that Epaphras was a local in, in Colossae, that he was from Colossae. And it appears in this letter that Epaphroditus is a local in Philippi. So unless Epaphroditus had two hometowns, and I suppose that's possible, then the chances are not very good that, that, that Epaphroditus and Epaphras are the same person. So if that's the case, then we only know Epaphroditus from this one book. What does it tell us about Epaphroditus? Well, we know that Epaphroditus was the one who came to Paul in Rome carrying the gift. Here in, uh, in this, in this uh, chapter, uh, Paul says, I think it's necessary to send back to Epaphroditus. Um, he's also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. Now, he's not exactly specific about the financial gift here, but when we get to chapter 4, Paul says, I received from Epaphroditus the financial gift that you gave me. So it, it's very, very clear that that's what he meant. Perhaps the church had in mind that Epaphroditus would take care of more needs than the financial needs for Paul, that he would be there to help Paul in other ways. But clearly they sent a significant financial gift to Paul to help him with his situation in house arrest as he He's trying to present the gospel in Rome. What else do we know about Epaphroditus? Well, not, not much. Paul says, you are my brother, my co-worker, and my fellow soldier. It doesn't sound like that Epaphroditus was someone that Paul just met when he got the financial gift. I suppose it's possible that he could all of a sudden establish this deep relationship with Epaphroditus, but that's not what it sounds like to me. It sounds as if Paul knew Epaphroditus. Maybe we can put the whole story together something like this, that when Paul went to the church at Philippi, perhaps Epaphroditus was among those first Christians that came to, those first people that came to know Christ. He was a Greek. His name would have been a Greek name, so he was a Greek. And maybe at that point, he turned to Christ. Certainly, by the time Paul returns on his third missionary journey and stays in Macedonia for about three months, ministering to the people at Philippi as well as some of the surrounding areas, maybe Epaphroditus became one of his co-workers during that time. But in any case, he had gotten to know Paul well, that he had worked with Paul in the presentation of the gospel, that he had been faithful to Paul during all of this kind of time. So when the church at Philippi decided that they were going to send an offering back to, uh, back to, to Rome to help Paul, that Epaphroditus said, I'll go, I'll take care of it. Now, we already know from Paul's story that this is not an easy journey. I mean, Paul was shipwrecked, nearly drowned, snake bit. As a matter of fact, I didn't even tell you about the part where he's nearly killed by a bunch of, uh, by a bunch of soldiers on the boat. I mean, Paul, is, this is not an easy, an easy journey. And we don't know whether Epaphroditus would have made his way on land, which would have been less common. He would have had to have gone all the way across Greece, up over the Alps, and down all the way to Rome. Or he would have gone by, by ship, where he would have sailed all the way around Greece, and then all the way around Italy to come back to the other side of Italy. But we do know that he would have probably had to have a treacherous journey that probably involved um, running into thieves, uh, running into wild animals, um, having problems with, with potential shipwreck, having problems with, with, with uh, people who were trying to extort money from him, that there would have been all of these situations that would have made it difficult for Epaphroditus to get there. And when he arrives, it appears that Epaphroditus was already ill and seems to have been growing sicker and sicker. 
probably somehow in this journey, Epaphroditus picked up because of exposure, because of, of the, the, the transfer of, of disease from some plague that he had picked up some kind of a disease. And so while Epaphroditus gives Paul this financial gift, that he really is failing himself. In fact, the doctors of his time seem to say, Epaphroditus isn't going to make it. He's likely to die. You can hear Paul's concern for him as he starts to talk about these people. He says, move on to the next slide for me. He says he was ill and he almost died. But he said, but God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but also on me. To spare me sorrow upon sorrow. But to Paul, this man was a brother, a fellow at arms in the gospel. And to have him bring this financial gift, but to have that gift cost him his life would have caused great sorrow to Paul. And I suppose if uh, Epaphroditus was the kind of Christian that we expect him to, that he would have understood like Paul that to live is Christ, to die is gain. But to die in Rome was probably not what he had in mind where his brothers and sisters in the church in Philippi would never get a chance to see him again. So... God provided for him to be healed for his own joy to be able to return, for the joy of Paul to be able to save a brother, and, Paul says, for the joy of his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And when Epaphroditus was fully healed, I think Paul sat down to pen this letter. And I think Epaphroditus carried the book of Philemon, (laughs) this letter, with him back to Philippi so that the people could see him, so that the people could know that he was well, so that people could rejoice in what God had done in his life, not just to serve, but to serve to the very point of death. So these are great stories. What does this mean for our lives? You know, I suspect that Paul preached the gospel to some tens of thousands in his lifetime. He was certainly the greatest of the evangelists in the New Testament. But it wasn't the 10,000 that he preached to that caused the church to spread across the known world. It was the few that he invested in his life in to the point that they were willing to continue to preach the message and be faithful to the message. People like Timothy and like Epaphroditus that continued to do that. And then that passed the message on to others who were faithful as well. It seems like to me that that gauntlet, that, 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 that job, that, that role is now laid at our feet. And the question for us is, do we continue to be faithful to the message of Christ 
faithful in our relationship with him, faithful in our, in our, 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 our uh, investment in the church, faithful in the mission of Christ? Do we continue to be faithful? Or do we walk away? Uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy a few years later, Timothy was pastoring a church in Ephesus at that time. Paul wrote to him uh, a letter. And a little aside that Paul makes is really interesting. Move on ahead for me. There we go. Paul tells him, there have been some have rejected. He's talking about the message of Christ. Some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. That there were these two young disciples, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that apparently Paul had poured his life into that simply walked away from the faith to the point that Paul said they're not useful for anything other than to turn them over to Satan with the hope that they can learn not to stand against the gospel of Christ. This is the only reference in Scripture to either Hymenaeus or Alexander. For eternity, they go down as those who stood against the gospel, even though they were disciples of Paul. I don't know about you, friends, but I don't want the final word about my life to be he lived a life that was shipwrecked, that his faith was shipwrecked. So how do we be faithful? How do we live faithful lives? Move ahead to the next slide for me. I think that these guys give us examples of about four different ways that I think are important in terms of being faithful. First of all, I believe that this passage calls us to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. That that means more than showing up on Sunday. That being faithful means that I walk with Him on a day-by-day -day basis. That I read His Word with the hope of seeing Jesus revealed through His Word. That I look for His reflection in the world around me. That I'm always at work in building this relationship that I have with Christ. Because if I lack a relationship with Christ, then everything that happens at church is just role play. He calls us to have that kind of a relationship with Christ. Secondly, I believe that this passage teaches us to be loyal to those who serve in the church. Friends, I got to tell you, there are a lot of things that I love about Watermark Church. There are so many things that I love about this church. I was uh, with a group of, I don't know, a dozen, 15 of you guys yesterday for a short amount of time distributing food to people who are less fortunate all over, all over our area. That's a good thing. You're doing good ministry and things like that. But one of the times that I've been most proud of this church and most proud to call myself a member of this church was when we saw our pastor fall ill and face cancer and then complications of cancer and now chemotherapy with that. And over and over again to walk up to his room <laughs> and see two or three of you already sitting there loving on him and caring for him because we honor the pastor that God has given us to serve among us. I believe God calls us to be loyal, not blindly loyal to our pastor. Certainly we're called to search out the word of God for ourselves, but I believe that he's called us to be loyal to those who serve among us. 
And I thank you that you're that kind of a church. The third thing that I think this passage teaches us is that we're supposed to invest in the next generation of Christians. There was a study that was done at Fuller Seminary not long ago looking at churches that are effectively reaching and discipling young people. One of their findings was that in these churches, they called them exemplar churches because they were the churches where we're actually drawing more young people in instead of seeing young people leave the church. And one one of the, the findings that they had in this study of these exemplar churches is they said that in the churches that are reaching young people, that every member of the church believes it is their responsibility to pass on the faith to the next generation. Now, if you're a mom and dad of a kid, then you have a lot more opportunity to influence those young people who are in your home. You may not think that that's true. You may think they don't listen to you. It's not true. Let me tell you that every study that we can look at says teenagers pay more attention to their parents than they do to anyone else, even if they tell you it's not true, even if they tell you they don't believe what you say. They listen. You have more opportunity to influence kids than anyone else. And if you happen to be one of the folks that are working with our teenagers on Friday nights or at some other time during the week or with our children on Sunday mornings or at some other time of the week, God has given you a unique opportunity to be able to live out the faith in front of those those young people. But what I'm saying is different than that. I am saying that the job of every man and woman in the hearing of my voice right now and everyone who claims to belong to this church, the job of, uh, for us is to do everything that we know how to do to pass along our faith to young men and women who are growing up in a culture that has all but rejected the gospel. We need to invest in the next generation knowing. And last, I believe that this passage teaches that we should never give up. I don't know what kind of difficulties you're going to face in life, but I can guarantee you, you will face trouble. Paul talks about um, this, this man Epaphroditus that God chose to heal. But God doesn't heal everyone. We're going to bury people that are close to us. We're going to bury people that that, that break our hearts. We're going to deal with opposition to our faith from the people that we encounter, especially if we're living out our faith in ways that are dynamic around the world. We may deal with opposition in our own families, in our own homes. I don't know what kind of an opposition you're going to face. But I believe that the example of Epaphroditus and the example of Timothy and the example of Paul are that we are called to never give up. Um, John, many years later, was uh, exiled to the island of Patmos. And while he was there, he received a vision from the Lord Jesus Christ. As he started writing down this vision, one of the things that he wrote was he wrote letters to individual churches of Jesus speaking to individual churches about the truth. Go ahead and advance to the next slide for me. To the church at Ephesians, in part, he wrote this. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The Romans grew increasingly hostile to Christians as time went along, 
Paul says, or John says, Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. You guys know the book of Revelation. Days don't necessarily mean days. Numbers become very meaningful in terms of being the complete time that you're supposed to put in there is typically what 10 means. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Regardless of what opposition we face, regardless of the little messages that are posed in our culture over and over again that try to convince us that what we believe as Christians is not true, regardless of how the world approaches us or what we face, never give up. God promises you life. One more slide. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, this translation says, and perfecter of our faith. that there are those who have gone before us that stand there cheering for us. If you close your eyes, can you see Timothy up in the stands looking down, cheering you on? I, maybe Epaphroditus has got your name written across his chest in marker, you know, because he's cheering for you to go on, to live for Christ, to be faithful to him, to be faithful to your calling. I believe that's what this passage teaches us. That just as those who have gone before us stand and cheer, that we pick up the baton and we continue the race. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have given us such rich examples in Scripture of people who were faithful in the face of difficulties, in the face of problems, in the face of all kinds of concerns. People who were willing to go to the point of death in order to serve you and serve you well. Our heart's desire, God, is to be that kind of people. To be the kind of people who are faithful to you, regardless of the circumstances. Who are concerned about the next generation knowing Christ and growing up to know you personally that we affirm those who minister among us and God, that we most of all pursue this deep, intimate relationship that we've established with you, that we set our eyes on you and choose to follow you for the rest of our lives. We love you, God. We commit ourselves afresh to you. We pray in the strong name of Jesus.